Well, good morning, Living Hope Columbus family and friends. So glad you could tune in with us today. So whether you're tuning in live right now, if you're listening to one of our rebroadcasts later this week, or even perhaps on our podcast, we are so glad that you are with us today. Um, As I have the past few weeks, I want to remind us of that same truth over and over that's this, that the gospel is resilient, the word of God cannot be stopped, and the church is alive and well in these trying times. If we've never met before, my name is Aaron. I serve as the teaching pastor at Living Hope Columbus. And uh, again, so glad you're worshiping with us. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to get that out. If you're a note taker, grab a notebook and a pen. And we're going to get started here in just a minute. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And before we read that in just a moment, I want to just really let you know of an opportunity that we're going to attempt to engage in this week And it's the simple idea of Jesus changed my life. Jesus has changed my life. And what we're encouraging you to do, since the local church is scattered and not gathered as a body, really leading up to Easter Sunday, is we really want to encourage you this this week sometime to record a 60-second video. That's it, a 60-second video of your testimony, how Jesus changed your life. And then take that video and upload it at some point this week to a social media platform. That way we can do our part to get the gospel out there. 60-second testimony videos, Jesus changed my life. And let's flood social media outlets this week with testimonies of how Jesus has changed our life. And if you don't have social media, um, if, if you are not on any of those platforms, email those to us, office at livinghopecolumbus.com. We'll take that video that you sent us put it on one of our platforms, and let, man, let's just flood social media with the gospel this week. I think it could really be incredible if that takes off. So Matthew chapter 21, it's Palm Sunday, uh, week before Easter, week before Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to look at when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem today. So if you want to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, if you're in your living room, your kitchen, um, if you're still in bed, Get out of bed and stand up, man, for the reading of God's Word. That's important, all right? Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read verses 8 and 9 this morning. And God's Word says this. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted these words, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again, Lord, so much for this day. Father, that even though your local church is scattered right now, it is still alive and well, and the gospel is still going forth, and the church is still being edified today. Jesus, I pray now as we look at a familiar story, Father, this week before Easter, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes, Lord, to see this again. God, give us open ears today to hear your word. Father, give us open hearts to receive your word, Lord, and the hands and feet that we need as we pursue Jesus this week, wherever we find ourselves. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I was thinking as reading this passage this week, reading through Matthew 21 again as this Palm Sunday uh, had approached, and I was really thinking about this idea that throughout our lives, we are confronted with several different questions that we have to answer. Several important questions throughout our life. Simple ones like, where am I going to go to school? When I uh, really move out of my folks' house, where am I going to live? Where am I going to plant roots with my life? 
When we get to that point, we have to ask that question of who am I eventually going to marry? What job will I have? Where will I go on vacation this year? What car will I buy? Question after question, the list goes on of these important questions that we all have to ask ourselves throughout our life. But I believe with all my heart that here in Matthew 21, we find another question that at some point we all have to answer, and it's this. Who is Jesus? You see, because that question, the answer to that question informs all of those other questions in our life. That question actually serves as the foundation to every other question that we will ever answer. Who is Jesus? Now notice how we phrased that this morning. It's not the question of who is Jesus to me. It's not the question of who did my parents say Jesus is. It's not the question of who do my friends tell me that Jesus is or what do my coworkers say about Jesus? No, the question really is who is Jesus of the Bible? Who is the real living, breathing Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling and reigning with all authority, who will someday come back for his church? Who is Jesus? You know, there's several answers to that question. Maybe you've heard these before. Some would simply say that, that Jesus is or was a good person. Jesus did good things and he lived a good life and tried to bring good to the earth. Others will say that Jesus was simply a great teacher who, whose lessons revolutionized the world as we know it. Yet some, when confronted with that question of who is Jesus, would simply say, well, he was a liar. He was a lunatic who simply had an agenda that he was trying to fulfill. And there's still people that believe in his lunacy to this day. It was simply a blind cause. Who is Jesus? You see, the answer to that question this Easter season makes all the difference in our lives. And I think Matthew 21 gives us the answer to that question of who is Jesus. Jesus. Let's look at this passage chapter together this morning. Matthew chapter 21, if you're unfamiliar with this whole Easter story, sets in motion what is known as Holy Week in Christian history or Christian tradition. If that's unfamiliar to you, let me walk you through some of these real quick. So today is what's known as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is really where he goes public with his earthly ministry. Monday is what's known as Holy Monday. This is that point in time in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus cleansed the temple. If you've never read that story before, you can read that this week. Tuesday is what's known as Holy Tuesday in Christian tradition where Jesus had several encounters with religious leaders, really butting heads with them over what he was teaching. Wednesday is what's known as Spy Wednesday. This was that day that Judas conspired with the religious leadership of that day to ultimately betray Jesus for some silver and have Jesus killed. Thursday of this week is what's known as Maundy Thursday. This was that point in time where Jesus observed the Last Supper with his disciples, where he presented to them that ultimately he was going to die for the sins of humanity. Friday of this week, just a few days from now, is what's known as Good Friday. It's where we look back and remember the death of Jesus on that cross. Saturday is what's known as Holy or Silent Saturday, where Jesus' lifeless body lay inside that tomb, and death thought it won. But man, were they in for a wake-up call, because next Sunday... We celebrate what's known as Easter or Resurrection Sunday, where Jesus defeated death, 
hell and the grave and paid the sin debt for you and me. But today, in Matthew 21, it's Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry. Here in Matthew chapter 21, if you want to look at your passage, starting in verse 1, Jesus is on a 17-mile journey here. He's going from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem, setting in motion Holy Week, going public with his ministry, ultimately going to fulfill his mission to die and pay for the sin debt of humanity. Here in Matthew chapter 21, Passover week has just started in Jerusalem. If you look at John chapter 11, verse 55, same story, different perspectives. Here's what John writes. He says, now the Jewish Passover was near, so many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. If you're unfamiliar with Passover, this was the time where the nation of Israel, where the Jewish people would look back on when God rescued them from years and years of Egyptian slavery and he redeemed them as a people. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. Specifically, what they were looking back to was when God commanded them to take the blood of a lamb and to put it over their doorpost so the angel of death would pass over and spare their family. Yet what they didn't realize in this moment is as they were looking back on that lamb, that spotless lamb that they sacrificed in order to be passed over to ultimately lead to their freedom, the true spotless lamb who was Jesus was in their midst. And so now let's look at that question that we uh, posed just a few moments ago. Who is Jesus now that we know the background? And let's find the answer to that question in this passage. Verse 1. The Bible says this, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent ahead of him two disciples. So now they've almost arrived to Jerusalem just, just from Jericho, 17-mile journey. They're approximately two miles outside of Jerusalem now in, in Bethphage. And Jesus has two of his disciples go ahead of him with a very specific task. Look at verse 2. Look at what he asked them to do. He it says he tells them, go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. Three sentences, Jesus tasks these guys with eight different things that they needed to do that would ultimately result in them returning with this donkey and a colt tied to it. Notice how specific Jesus is here in verse 2. He says, first off, go into to Bethphage. So that's that village that they're just outside of now, two miles away from Jerusalem. He says, at once, meaning, so right when you walk into the gates of this city, you're going to find a donkey. Not only are you going to find a donkey, but you're going to find a donkey with a colt tied to it. Notice, I think this is interesting, the specific nature of the gender of the donkey. Jesus is very specific in what he's asking them to do. Then he says, you're going to take that donkey and the colt, you're going to untie them, you're going to bring it to me. Now, we could stop right there. Jesus could have stopped right there. And he could have proved his divinity pretty easily. That's incredibly specific what he is asking these guys to do. It's probably blowing the mind of the disciples. They're thinking, man, if this comes true, this guy's legit. What's he got going on? But Jesus keeps going. So you're going to go into Bethphage. You're going to find the donkey with the colt. You're going to untie it. You're going to bring it to me. And then Jesus steps, says this, verse 3. He says, and somebody's going to stop you. Really? You think, Jesus, I'm stealing their animal? That'd be like you going to Kroger this afternoon, and when somebody's loading up their groceries, you just hop in the front seat of their car and take off. They're going to stop you because you're stealing their mode of transportation. Of course they're going to stop me, Jesus. And then look at what he asked them to say in verse 3. Tell them the Lord needs it. Now, without being too lighthearted here, 
The fact that the disciples could simply say those five words and the owners of this donkey and this colt would let them leave with it really shows me the divine nature of Jesus in control of this entire situation. He was in control of every single minute detail that he was calling these guys to engage in. It's the divine in control of the details. Can we remember that truth today? But then the closer in verse 3, he says, you're going to say that the Lord needs them. They're going to let you go. And then he says, and then tell him that, that he'll send them back at once. He says, not only are we going to take these guys' donkeys, but just ensure them that at some point in time that these two random strangers that took their transportation are going to come back and bring the donkey and the colt back to them. This is an incredible situation, what's going on here. Jesus was being so specific with these guys to continue to show them that he was God. But don't miss this as well. I think this is interesting. This was also the fulfillment of a prophecy made hundreds of years in advance of this. Look at verses 4 and 5. So this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, that's Israel, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those words that Matthew quotes here in verses 4 and 5 were actually originally written by Isaiah, Isaiah 62, verse 11. They were written by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus did this. Not only that, but Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he also writes part of this verse as well. Zechariah was written 500 years before Jesus did this. Now, 500 years and 700 years really don't sound like a lot of time just because they're, they're just kind of numbers on paper. Let me give you perspective on that real quick. You know, as of this moment right now that the United States of America is only 234 years old, that means when Zechariah penned these words, it was three times longer in the past than the age of the United States. When, 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 when Zach, or Isaiah was three times longer, when Zechariah penned his words, it was two times longer than the age of the United States. Folks, these were written hundreds of years ago, and Jesus is now literally fulfilling these things. Why is that so significant? We've talked about this before so many times at our church. There's approximately 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And you know Jesus fulfilled all 300 of those literally in his flesh? You have a better likelihood today of going and getting an ice cream cone, getting struck by lightning while you're sitting inside of the gorilla pen at the Columbus Zoo, which is closed, by the way, so this is nearly impossible. You have a better likelihood of doing that than Jesus did in fulfilling all 300 of these prophecies. What's he doing? Not only he's showing us divine, but he's showing us that he's in complete control at the same time. That mankind, Genesis 3.15, needed a savior, and that's found in Jesus. Now, I don't want us to miss this either. Why this donkey? I bet if they would have went into Bethphage, there'd have been hundreds of donkeys to choose from. Why this one? Look with me real quick, Luke chapter 19, verse 30. Luke chapter 19, verse 30, God's word says this. Again, same story, different perspective. He says, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there. Now watch this, on which no one has ever sat before. Untie it and bring it to me. Why is this donkey so significant? 
Man, this is such an important truth. Don't miss this here. Matthew doesn't give us this detail. Luke, who was the doctor, gives us a little bit more detail about this donkey. Watch this. Who was the first person to ever sit on the donkey that was going to be bought, brought to Jesus in this moment? First person to ever sit on it? Jesus. Nobody had ever broken and tamed this animal before. Nobody had ever sat on it. Jesus would be the very first one. Why does this matter? This is so neat to me. Please don't miss this. Throughout the Old Testament, you can see over and over and over that animals that were used for God's purposes had never been used for anything else before. That animals that were going to be used for God's purposes had to be sacred and set apart and not used for any other capacity except for the purposes of God. An example for you, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. Ark of the Covenant was being pulled back to Jerusalem. And we see it was pulled by what? Two cows who had never been yoked before. Right? This is the first time that this has ever happened to these cows before. So if an animal had been used for ordinary purposes in the past, then it could no longer be used for God's purpose. So Jesus, about to commit the most sacred act in all of eternity, dying for the sins of mankind, what did he do? He rode in on an unbroken donkey, one that had never been mounted before. Why? As a sign and a symbol of the sacred act that he was about to make on behalf of God, accomplishing God's purposes. Matthew 21, 6 and 7, the Bible says this. So the disciples went. They went and they did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and Jesus sat on them. You see it? Everything happened just as Jesus said it would. Why? Friends, he's a promise keeper. If Jesus said it, it's going to happen. God has never broken a promise before. God has never lied, and he never will. It's why in the midst of chaos and uncertainty and so many things swirling in our minds these days that we can trust the word of God to be true because God has never broken a promise. That's incredible. Verse 8, Matthew 21. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. So now verses 7 and 8, Jesus has made it to Jerusalem. They got the donkey, they got the colt, they've made it from two miles outside of the city. They're in Bethphage, now they've arrived in Jerusalem. And what are the crowds doing? This is so interesting to me. First off, part of the crowd is spreading their clothing on the road, so they would take off their outer garment and they were laying it down on the road before Jesus would pass over on the street. But then there was another group who was uh, cutting branches, palm branches from trees, and taking those branches and laying them on the road as well. Why were they doing this? There's two reasons here. And man, there's so much symbolism here in Matthew 21 that shows us who Jesus really is. The first reason was as they were showing, and these symbols were signs that Jesus was king. The other one was prophetic. They were giving us a glimpse into the future of who Jesus was as king of the universe and savior of the world. Let me explain here just a little bit. The book of 1 Kings, if you want, or 2 Kings, if you want to turn there. Israel's about to confirm a guy named Jehu as king. 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Look at what they do just when they're about to confirm Jehu as king over Israel. It says this. It says, so Jehu said, he talked to me about this and that and said, This is what the Lord says. Here it is. I anoint you king over Israel. All right, there's our our theme. And each man, what did he do? He quickly took his garment, it's that outer garment we just talked about, and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. 
And they blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So in this culture, it was culturally reverent that when a king was coming through that you would take off your outer garment in some capacity and you would lay it on the ground so that they didn't have to walk or ride over on the dirt. Instead, they would come over on your outer garment or your cloak. That's what they're doing for Jesus. It's the symbolism that he is king. Now, watch this. What about the branches? You see, palm branches during this time in ancient times were always used to represent goodness and victory. They represented a king who brought goodness into wherever he was ruling and victory to his people. What was Jesus coming to bring us? Goodness that we couldn't obtain on our own and victory over sin. So as they're doing this, don't miss, this is also, it's symbolism, but it's prophetic of a future reality that we will see in heaven. Revelation chapter 7. John is writing and he says, After I looked, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which nobody could number. Isn't that good news? That someday around the throne of heaven, there's going to be so many people that followed Jesus. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes, forgiven, sanctified, righteous before God. And what do they have in their hands? Watch this. Palm branches. They had palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation, victory belongs to our God who's seated on the throne. You know what they were doing in Matthew chapter 1? We're all going to get to do later in Revelation. What these people were proclaiming in, in Matthew chapter 21, we're all going to do as followers of Jesus in the future in Revelation chapter 7. That's good news because Jesus brings victory. Matthew 21 verse 9. Then the crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted. I'm a details guy. I want to know who these crowds are. I want to show you real quick. You're thinking, well, why, why does this matter? Well, because Matthew's about to say here in just a couple verses later in verse 11, that literally the city was in an uproar when Jesus arrived. So I want to know who are these crowds that have arrived in this city to greet Jesus here in Jerusalem for this Passover festival. I want to know who these people are. Now, remember this. Each of the Gospels talks about this account, this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Different perspectives, same story. Look at Luke chapter 19. Let's see who these crowds were. Now Jesus came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of who? The disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. So who's the crowd Matthew's talking about? Well, we know that the disciples were there. That was not just the twelve. You see, you fast forward just a few days later, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Luke actually writes that the disciples numbered about 120 people in the upper room. So we know part of the crowd is likely made up of these disciples, 120 of them who have arrived in Jerusalem to greet Jesus as the King and Savior of the world. Who else was there? John chapter 11, who also talks about this event. John writes about this triumphal entry. In John chapter 11, verse 19, it says, quote, that many Jews had come to comfort Mary and Martha. So this was a uh, little bit before this Passover festival started. They'd come to comfort Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus had died. Many Jews, that probably means several friends and family members had arrived here because they're comforting the family. It's like arriving for a funeral. Uh, funerals during this time were typically like week-long celebrations or week-long mornings of life. So several people had showed up for this. Then in John chapter 12, verse 9, it says not only we've got friends and family in town, 
But it says, then another large crowd shows up to this area because they heard Jesus resurrected Lazarus. You ever notice that some specific things just attract large groups of people? It's like when Chick-fil-A gives away chicken biscuits. It's like everybody and their grandma shows up for a free chicken biscuit. That's what's going on here. Jesus just resurrected somebody from the dead. He was dead. The Bible says he stinketh, right? It means he was, his, his body was rotten. But Jesus calls him from the grave, takes off his outer garments. Lazarus is alive. And people come out of the woodwork to see what's going on. Jesus brought somebody back from the dead. It's crazy. So you got 120 disciples. you got friends and family of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Then you got this other group that just showed up because they heard somebody rose from the dead and they want to hear what Jesus has going on. This is the chicken and biscuit group right here. Then John chapter 12, verse 12 says, that group migrated to Jerusalem from Bethany for the Passover festival. Watch this, John 12, verse 12. The next day when the large crowd had come to the festival. So that's those groups that we just talked about. They'd come to the festival because they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They thought to themselves, if he did that, what else is he going to do? we got to come and see what's going on. So you got not only here, disciples, friends and family, and the chicken and biscuit group. Now look, I'm not sure how many people make up a crowd in the Bible. But there was enough people here that Matthew writes here in verses 10 and 11 that the city was in an uproar when they arrived. We don't know how many people showed up, but I've never been any place where a group of 10 people show up with palm branches or, or tree sticks or something, and the whole city goes, oh, wow, that's a big crowd. This had to be several hundred people to disrupt a city. You know, Jerusalem at this time probably had 50 to 80,000 people that made up its size. And there was enough people that rolled into Jerusalem at this time, and it probably was inflated because of the Passover to maybe 125,000 people in the city. Enough people showed up to greet Jesus that the city was in an uproar. Look at verse 21, the second half of verse 9. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted. Here's what they're shouting about Jesus. Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Three things they say about Jesus. Blessed is the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. What's the significance there? First off is this. The first thing that they're doing when they say blessed is the king is they're quoting Psalm 118 verse 26. That was a prophetic psalm written by David about Jesus hundreds of years before this actually happened. In fact, it was probably 900 to 1,000 years, four times longer than the United States is, has ever existed written that many years before Jesus ever came to this earth. And these folks are quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. What's Jesus doing? Proving that he's God again. He's fulfilling prophecy. Second, what are they saying? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna literally means save us. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. Hosanna, save us who? Son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, write this down. God makes a covenant and a promise to David that through his lineage, the Savior of all mankind would come. That through David's ancestry, that, that the Savior of the world would ultimately be born. Matthew chapter 1 verse 6 says that from David's line, Jesus was born. This is another fulfillment of prophecy. And God keeping another promise to us. Watch this. What's the third thing that they say? Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest heaven. 
Hey, can we, fa- can we uh, rewind about 33 years real quick? Luke chapter 2, the angels meet a group of shepherds in the field. And what do they say to those shepherds? Suddenly there was a multitude, thousands of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven. There's our words. And what is it? Peace on earth to people that our God favors. You know, God promised his people, promised them 33 years before, that he would bring peace on earth and glory to God forever. Now, fast forward 33 years as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. God is keeping his promise yet again. And he's saying, yep, that's what Jesus has come to do. Friends, this story is so familiar, but let's go back to our original question real quick. Who is Jesus? Was Jesus a good person? Well, that's what the rich young ruler thought. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. That is God. Now, he wasn't just a good person. Was Jesus simply a great teacher whose whose teachings revolutionized the world? Well, his teachings have done that, but he's more than that. Was Jesus a liar? I think we saw in just 11 verses how often Jesus kept his promises over and over again. And over, he wasn't a liar. Who is Jesus? Who is the Jesus of the Bible? We see three things in Matthew 21 that answer that question. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Savior we need. And he's a promise keeper that I can trust. You see, when there was a sin debt that I couldn't pay, Jesus held up my end of the bargain by coming as a human and dying on a cross for me. You see, I needed a Savior because I was going to be separated from God for all eternity, and there was nothing that I could do about it. So Jesus stepped out of the glories of heaven and stepped into history 2,000 years ago. The divine became human. The divine lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I couldn't die to secure the eternity I didn't deserve. Jesus is my Savior. But the final thing that I want us to see today to answer our question, who is Jesus, is that he's the promise keeper that I can trust. God has shown over and over through his word that if he makes a promise, he will keep it. God has never broken a promise and he's not going to start breaking them now. And the reminder for us today as children of God is that although we are in a sorrowful time as a nation, that we cling to and we wrap ourselves around the promise that Jesus is coming back for his church. And for the Christian, this is the closest to hell we're ever going to get because God's a promise keeper and he's going to take his church home where we will be gathered among those many around the throne in Revelation chapter 7, taking our palm branches and declaring that Jesus is the savior of the world. Therefore, he is worthy of all of our praise. Who is Jesus? That's the question we all have to answer and wrestle with this Easter season. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you again, Lord, for your word. God, we rest in the truth that your word never returns void. Father, I pray, whether on the other side of this screen or other side of audio today, that, Lord, whether Christian or not a believer yet, Lord, that we would wrestle with that question, who is Jesus? And that, God, we would seek to, to find the answer to that question in your word. 
Not who does my grandma say he is. Not who does my, my uncle or my friend, Lord. No, no, no. Not even who is Jesus to me. God, we, we need to know who Jesus of the Bible is. Because it's in the answer to that question that we find hope, that we find security, and that we ultimately find eternal life. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for meeting with us today. I pray now as we sing that you turn your ear from heaven to hear our praises. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.